Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Before we get into the book of Ephesians proper this morning, I want to make a quick scheduling announcement, and I will make it over the internet here so that our local online listeners will also hear it. Turn to the book of Numbers for a moment, if you would. Numbers chapter 9. Last week, Micah stood here at very short notice. The week before that, we had our annual communion service. The week before that, we were in Ephesians 3. We'll be picking up in Ephesians 4 this morning. But first, I want to talk a little bit about our annual communion service. The upside of an annual communion service is that it is the most biblical schedule because Passover and the Lord's Supper are inextricably tied together. And I think you saw that evidence two weeks ago, and you've been seeing it for the 20 years that GCA has been in existence. And so that is why we do that memorial once a year, because the early church did it once a year because it was tied to Passover. In the Old Testament here in Numbers, as the ordinance of Passover is being handed out to the children of Israel, there were some men who approached Moses and said, well, we would have liked to have worshipped God in the Passover, but we were unclean. In other words, there were unavoidable events in our lives that kept us from being ceremonially clean so that we could keep the Passover, but we still want to worship God because this is an ordinance that every year you would do this remembrance, and we weren't able to do it because of our circumstances. Here's what it says. Chapter 9 of the book of Numbers, starting at verse 1, Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, In the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time, and you shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances." So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. And they observed the Passover on the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of a dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that particular day. So they came to Moses and Aaron on that day, and those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations, that means ongoing, becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord in the second month on the 14th day at twilight. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall leave none of it until morning nor break a bone of it. According to all the statutes of the Passover, they shall observe it. So, what this tells me is that God understands that sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances that happen that limit people from being able to observe that once a year memorial. 
And that happened to us a couple of weeks ago. There were people who wanted to be here, who wanted to be part of our annual communion service, who then thought, do I have to wait a whole nother year? Well, here is a biblical precedent that says a month after Passover, you can do the same memorial yet again. So we're going to. Now, by the way, if you know me well at all, you know that I am not, by any stretch of the imagination, a legalist. I'm not trying to take us back to the law of Moses and say, look, here are the ordinances of the law of Moses. Therefore, that allows us to do this. But what I am is a Bible guy. And I don't like to do anything within the church that I don't have biblical precedent for. And that is the reason that we have had annual communion for all our years. But I have always known about this caveat that it could one month afterwards be done again, especially because there are people who weren't able to make it the first time. Next Sunday is 29 days exactly after Passover. Okay, that's just coincidental. It just happened this year. The next Sunday is 29 days after. But I say, close enough. See, now my Christian liberty kicks in. <laughs> so what I think we're going to do next week, unless anybody has a major objection to it, and at men's group, I floated this in front of the men, and everybody said, I think that's a good idea, with the exception of Jeff, who said, yeah, but once a year is kind of your thing. <laughs> so next week, we are going to have a communion service. And I am going to teach yet again on communion because there's so very much to say about the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are going to observe that memorial yet again next week. So I'm trying to be biblical. I'm trying to understand that there were people who went through extraordinary circumstances, and I do want to accommodate them, and I want to accommodate them in the most biblical way, and that seems to be the way. Make sense? Yes. So next week, come here expecting that we're going to have communion service. Turn to Ephesians 4. In order to understand what Paul is about to say in Ephesians 4, I have to kind of go back to part of how we introduce the book. I told you that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is heavy on doctrine, and I think you've seen that. Paul has really been laying out his doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and election before the foundation of the world. And he's used words like predestination and the electing grace of God. And he has been laying that out for three chapters now in a letter that is to be an encyclical letter to all the churches in that portion of Asia. So this is clearly what Paul expected for the church to know and for the church to teach. But then in chapter 4, he suddenly takes a left turn and he moves from the thick theology, the whole, the healthy theology. He moves from there into how should you react to it. The big theological terminology for that is the indicative and the imperative. If you don't know those words, indicative indicates... It indicates who you are, what you are. That's why Paul has already said, you are the elect. You are the called. You are the blood-bought. You are those who are the church. You are in Christ. That's who you are. And now he's going to move from the indicative to the imperative. The imperative is what you do. In too much of modern religion, as you've heard me say over and over again, in too much of modern religion, not just modern Christianity, they get that equation backwards, and they put the imperative ahead of the indicative. In other words, they say, if you want the reward, whatever the reward of that religion is, if you want heaven forever, if you want 70 virgins, if you want to reach nirvana, whatever the reward is, they'll tell you, you got to do the stuff to get the reward. 
to get your 70 virgins, you got to go kill infidels. Or to get to nirvana, you have to go meditate your way into the that that is behind all that. And too much of Christianity buys into that and says, if you want to be accepted by God, you've got to make yourself good. You have to clean yourself up. You have to do all your good works. You have to make sure that you fix you so that God will save you. And that's backwards of what the Bible says. Never at any point in the Bible will you find, especially in the New Testament, you'll never find any of the New Testament writers putting the imperative, what you do, ahead of the indicative, who you are. They always start with who you are. Who you are is sinful. Who you are is a depraved sinner who has been bought by the blood of Christ, who has been saved by the grace of God, who has received the Holy Spirit as a gift of God, a governor on your behavior, and then once you understand who you are as the beloved, as the purchased, redeemed people of God, once you know that about you, you can then move to the imperative, as Paul's about to do, and then say, now since you are all that, be like this. So we do not negate good works. We don't say it's grace, it's all grace, it's constantly grace, and therefore you don't have to react or you don't have to do good works. What we say is good works cannot save you, which is the same thing Paul says repeatedly, even if you were to try to keep the law, your good works according to the law cannot save you, but because you've been saved... Paul says, now do good works. Do you get the difference? Do you understand the difference? Now, he is going to identify we, the saved, the redeemed, the Christian people. He's going to identify us by particular nomenclature here. So we have to spend a little bit of time looking into how Paul uses the word called. Because he's going to say, you are called. What does that mean, that we are called. There are various different Greek words, kletos and klossos, and, but they all mean the call, the calling, the called ones. In fact, the very name of the church, the, the word that is translated church in English is the Greek word ekklesia. That word is a compound word formed out of a couple of concepts. Ek, which is out. Klossos, which is called. And so the church is referred to as the outcalled ones. And I wish that we were still referred to that way because sometimes the word church loses its force. We don't understand that when we're referred to as the church, we're being referred to as those people who God has specifically called out from the world, called out to himself called out even from our sinfulness, our depravity, our best efforts to ruin our eternity. He's called us out from all that. And then he named us that. Collectively, we are the outcalled. Turn to the book of Romans for just a moment. I know I just said, turn to Ephesians 4, which was a complete waste of time. But turn to Romans right at the beginning. Romans chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. There he is right there, called. I didn't become an apostle because I chose to be an apostle. I'm an apostle because God specifically called me and gave me this assignment to be an apostle. I was set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God by power, by the power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you are also are the called 
of Jesus Christ. Paul identifies the church, the outcalled, as the called of Jesus Christ. That's the reason that God called you. That's the reason that he called you out of your own darkness, out of this world. He has called you out of your natural proclivities and your natural tendency towards sin. He has called you to himself, and therefore he refers to you as the called. Turn to chapter 8 here in Romans. I just want you to get some sense of how Paul keeps using this word. You know this passage, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, okay, so there's one identifier. Everything works together for good, not for everybody, but to those who love God. And who are those people who love God, and how is it that they love God? To those who are called according to his purpose. God identifies, Paul identifies Christians as the called people. They're the ones who love God because God first loved them, placed his spirit inside them, called them to himself. And then this is what he does for the called. He calls them according to his own purpose because those whom he foreknew, those who he had relationship with in advance, those are the ones he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that was his plan ahead of time. Before they were even born, before they ever knew him, he knew them, had relationship with them in advance. And for that reason, because of the great love with which he loved those people, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those people whom he predestined, the ones he determined in advance, those, Paul says, he called. So because he had chosen them, because he had determined that those were going to be his people from before the foundation of the world, in time, in history, in actuality, here on planet Earth, as you're living out your life, at some point, he called you. But he didn't call you randomly. He called you because he had determined to call you before he did anything. So this call is really, really important. Whom he did predestine, these he also called. And those that he called are the very ones that he ended up justifying. And those that he justified, those are the ones that he glorified. Are you getting some sense of Paul's language of calling? Turn to 1 Corinthians for just a moment, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is right after the book of Romans. So just keep flipping forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul makes it very clear what the purpose of this calling is. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he called you. He called you to be fellow heir, to be brethren, to be part of the family, to adopt you into the family of God so that you have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the reason for the calling. So he determined that he was going to call you before the foundation of the world. Then in time in history, he actually called you. And the purpose of the calling was to bring you into fellowship with Jesus Christ. You get the big calling picture? Now you can turn to Ephesians 4. Paul is going to again identify himself as a prisoner of the Lord. When he began the book of Romans there, you saw that he was referring to himself as a slave, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, he referred to himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 begins, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, because he actually was in Rome in prison as he was writing these words. But he was in prison because he was preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you. I don't just suggest to you. I entreat you. I beg you. I'm instructing you in what I'm telling you. I entreat you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now you understand the weight of those words, I hope. If you understand what the whole calling thing is about, if you understand that God determined your calling before the foundation of the world, and then he actually did call you out from the world, from yourself, from your sinfulness, from this present darkness, from this crazy, evil, stupid world. He called you to himself so that you would have fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, as you're walking out your life here on the planet, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ on this planet. So what should ambassadors of Jesus Christ look like? How should ambassadors of Jesus Christ act? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Okay, so what is the value of the calling? How valuable is your calling to you? It's everything. It's why you have hope. It's why you have confidence. It's why you have faith. It's why you can launch out of this world knowing that you're going to be okay, that you're going to stand before the all-omnipotent, all-present, all-powerful, all-magisterial, sovereign God, and you're going to be okay because he called you. That makes that calling really, really valuable in your life. So Paul says, when you're figuring out how you ought to behave yourself in this lifetime, start with the knowledge that you've been called. And if you know you've been called, act like it. Notice what he did. Indicative imperative. He started with, you are the called, therefore, be like this. He didn't say, if you want to be called, act like this. Instead, he said, you are the called. And you were called by God before the foundation of the world. So he wasn't even thinking about the stuff you were doing. In fact, he sent his son to be the propitiation for all the sins that you do naturally walk in. And Paul says that even the good works that we walk in were ordained by God for us. So he's in charge of the actions of the works. He's paid for the bad ones. He has indwelt us to bring about the good ones. So it's not about our actions. It's not about our works. That's not the foundation of our salvation. Our salvation is based on the grace of God and the love of God and the foreknowledge of God, which took place before he made anything. But since you know all that about how you got saved... Act like it. You see the argument? I mean, it's a pretty rock-solid argument. If God has done all that for you, how should you be? Well, now he's going to tell you just basic ground-level, here's what Christianity would look like. What is the most common Sin mentioned in the Bible. If you don't all answer me at this point, because you all know it should be tattooed to your brain by now, because I've said it so many times, and if you don't all answer me collectively, correctly with the answer here, I quit today. I'm walking out the door, and I'm never coming back if you don't answer this question correctly. What is the most often repeated sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. <laughs> pride so what's the first thing that Paul says about how you ought to walk as the called of Jesus Christ with all humility the absolute opposite of pride get your pride under control get your ego under control and understand that God did not save you because you were the good one 
He didn't look at you and say, wow, that guy's doing great. I better save him. He saves sinners. And he saw you as a depraved sinner who was in desperate need of his grace, compassion, and love. And therefore, he saved you to his own glory, not to your glory. Not so that you can get raised up in pride and say, well, of course, he saved me. I can't quite understand why he would save Tom, but me, yeah, you know. That's, that's not the attitude. He starts right away with, if you're a Christian, you walk in humility. You don't start with me first. You start with sacrificial love for other people. Sacrificial love, agape love, is that kind of love that God has given to us. Therefore, we reflect that love in the way that we deal with other people, particularly other people within the household of faith. So start with, not me, you. The best definition I've ever heard for sacrificial love is doing what is best for the person who is loved, regardless of whether that person responds or does anything back for you. You do it for them simply because it is what's best for them. And if that's difficult for you, if that's hard for you, it's supposed to be. That's why it's sacrificial love. Because it doesn't come natural to us. We're much too involved in that kind of human love that, that says, uh, I will love you as long as you love me. But God's love does not change. God's love remains sacrificial. God's love is an eternal love that reaches as far back into eternity past as it reaches into eternity future. It is the unerring, unchanging love of God. And then he expects us, because we have his spirit within us, to demonstrate some part of that kind of love to each other, to one another. And you can't be that sacrificial to each other if you're starting with, hey, dig me. So naturally, Paul would begin by saying, because you've been called, walk with humility and gentleness, not argumentative, not confrontational, not hate-filled. Because remember, you are an ambassador of Christ. So however you are is demonstrating to people, oh, this is what Christ would be like if he was here. So is he going to be petty? Is he going to be angry all the time? Is he going to be sarcastic? Well, I, I got to be careful with that one. <laughs> is he going to be hard on people? Is he going to be harsh to people who he supposedly loves? No, he's going to be gracious to those people. He's going to be helpful to those people. He's going to come alongside. He's going to support those people. He's going to encourage those people. So Paul starts right out by saying, if you're walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you've been called, you would start by being humble and gentle with patience, with long-suffering, showing forbearance for each other. I like the fact that Paul included that because I don't know about you, but every once in a while I come across a person who I just have a tough time with. You know anybody like that? Don't raise your hand and don't point at anybody. <laughs> every once in a while I come across people that are just a little hard to love. And yet right here Paul says, yeah, it's a sacrifice. So instead, be long-suffering with them. Why? Because God is incredibly long-suffering with you. Think about everything he's done for you. And yet you know that somewhere in the last 24 hours, you did something that made you think, how could God love someone like me? Here I am yet again, basking in my sin. Here I am yet again, not living up to the standard that I even hold for myself. I'm disappointed in me. How could God not be disappointed with me? He's incredibly long-suffering with you. He puts up with you. He encourages you and is sacrificial to you 
despite you. So because God has been like that with you, Paul says, now be like that with each other. Be patient, be long-suffering, be humble, be gentle with each other. And then he sums it up this way in verse 3. Be diligent. What does that word diligent mean? It means purposeful, active. So be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How many times have you heard me use that word peace and tell you that the Greek word means the cessation, the ending of the againstness. And we as human beings are just naturally against each other, especially if we start with our ego, if we start with ourselves, we're naturally against other people. Right now, the politics in America and indeed in the world are trying to divide people, divide people by race or by class or by gender or by just every way they can find to divide people. That's the opposite of what Christianity is. Christianity is endeavoring diligently to protect the bond of peace because of the unity of the spirit. The Holy Spirit that indwells Micah is the same Holy Spirit who indwells Shane. So should Micah and Shane get along? Sure they should. But what if Micah finds out something about Shane that he doesn't particularly like? (laughs) What if he finds out something like that? Is he going to go out and start a whispering campaign? Is he going to go out and start rumors about Shane? No, he's not supposed to. What is that going to do? That's going to create division within the body. We're told here, make sure that you work really, really hard, be really, really diligent to preserve the unity, the unity that is caused by the common Holy Spirit that we all share so that there is a bond between us. We are all bound together, and the thing that binds us together is the cessation of againstness the ceasing of our separateness so that we recognize ourselves as one body in Christ. Now, Paul's going to elucidate on that very thing. In fact, in verse 4, he's going to say there's only one body and there's only one spirit. So if there's only one body and there's only one spirit, where is the disunity? Well, it shouldn't exist. The church of Jesus Christ ought to be able to work out whatever differences we have between each other. So much so that Paul also argues that it's wrong for a Christian to sue one another, to go to court with one another. He even says, isn't the church adequate to figure out these kind of differences between each other? So he sees unity within the body as being all-encompassing. Whatever your difference is, whatever arguments you have between each other for the sake of the unity and for the sake of the spirit of God that we all share that ought to be the commonality that drives us back to making sure that we're diligent to preserve that unity not for our sake again if you start with me again if you start with me again if I start with me if you start with you if we start with us and say me me it's all about me it's all about me Well, then, yeah, I'm going to argue with you if you come up against me. And I'm not going to be diligent to protect those bonds of peace. But if I start with sacrificial love for you, then I am going to sacrificially make sure that there is peace between us for the sake of the spirit that we share in common and the fact that we are both called by God to Jesus Christ since before the foundation of the world. That becomes the inspiration for Micah to get along with Shane. See the difference? There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you are also called. He keeps bringing this calling thing up. Remember your calling. Remember that you didn't choose Jesus. You didn't make him Lord and Savior. You didn't make him anything. He already was Lord. He already was Savior. God is already God, 
and they are acting on your behalf by their own grace and kindness and love toward you. Therefore, because you're the one who was called to God, therefore, keep hope between each other. Keep encouragement between each other. Keep long patience and suffering between each other because you were called in one hope because of your calling. The calling of God gives you a very specific hope. I've told you before, the Greek word, elpis, means confident expectation of what you know is going to happen. And we as Christians all have the same hope. And that one hope we all have is that someday we're all going to be together around the throne of God. We're going to be worshiping God together in unity someday. We all have the hope that Jesus Christ is coming back. That he's going to crack the clouds and that he's going to come get his church. Going to bring his bride home to his father's house. That's a hope that we all have as Christian people. And that's one hope. And that one hope is shared by every one of us. So here again Paul is saying, see how this Christian thing ought to unify you rather than separate you. You all have the same Holy Spirit. You all have the same calling, and you all have the same hope. And shouldn't that hope and that calling and that spirit be bigger than your ego? If you're busy starting with me, you can't be fully Christian. Genuine Christianity starts with, I've been redeemed, I've been called, despite the fact that I am so sinful, despite the fact that I am so rebellious, I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ that I do not deserve and that I did not earn, and yet he was charitable and kind to me, he was gracious to me, and so therefore when I deal with my brethren who have the same spirit and the same call and the same hope, I ought to be as patient with them as God has been with me. I ought to be as loving sacrificially toward them as God has been to me. God becomes the example. His kindness, his grace to you becomes the example for how you ought to live because he called you to that. And that's why you have this common hope. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord. We all agree with that, right? We all know who the Lord is. It's Jesus Christ. If you start with you, if you start with me, my ego, what I want, what I want to do, you are your own Lord. But there's only one Lord. There's Jesus Christ. You are, as Paul said, prisoner of the Lord. You are servant of the Lord. You are ministering to the Lord. He's the Lord, not you. There is one Lord. There's one faith. How shall we define the one faith? Not only does that mean faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and our complete and utter deliverance through his sacrificial work. That's what we have faith in. He is the one object of faith and therefore we can say that's the one faith. But I think Paul in this context is also saying that there is only one Christian faith. There's only one theological faith. How do you get to that one theological faith? How do you get to that one Christian faith? There's only one way to do it. You have to decide that you're not the authority, but that the Bible is the authority. If the Bible defines the Christian faith for all of us, then we're going to come to that one faith because we're all agreeing on what the Bible says. And if we're allowing the Bible to say what it says, then we're going to come to unity in the faith because the Bible becomes the authority rather than our own individual opinions. So whether it is one faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ or whether it is one Christian faith, one doctrinal faith, one biblical faith, in all of those categories, Paul is arguing for unity of the faith, unity of doctrine, 
unity of belief. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there's one baptism. There was in the early church, and you read about it in the book of Acts, there were a couple of different baptisms. Among the Jews, in order to be ceremonially clean, they underwent washings, a series of washings that were technically baptisms, because the word baptismos means to immerse. And so there were several different immersions, several different cleanings that they went through. Okay, so that's one kind of baptism. Then there was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching the baptism of repentance. And so you read in the book of Acts that Paul and his companions came upon some disciples of John and they had said, uh, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, with what baptism were you baptized? And they said, with the baptism of John. And they said, well, then you need to be baptized into Christ. Not just the baptism of repentance that John preached. So there were all these different baptisms happening, especially in Jerusalem, among the Jews, among the early church. So Paul is very specific to say, there is one baptism that you've got to have to genuinely be Christian, and that is the baptism into Jesus Christ. The baptism in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's saying that is the baptism of unity. If you've been baptized by the ceremonial washings of the Jews, that doesn't count. If you've been baptized by John's baptism, you see in the book of Acts that they said, that's not enough. You've got to be baptized into Jesus Christ in order for there to be unity within the church. So there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. Now what you're going to notice in just a moment is that Paul is now delineating the whole trinity. He has already said there is one spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, one Lord one faith, one baptism, those all refer to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. You're baptized into him. You have faith in him and his finished work. Verse 6 says there's one God and the Father. So there you go. Spirit, Son, Father, the whole of the Trinity is here. And Paul is arguing that there's oneness in all of them. You don't get to pick your God. Why, again, is that so important? In Ephesus... There was a pantheon of gods. There were temples to various different gods. In men's group, we've been reading about Paul in Ephesus and how the leaders in Ephesus, the political leaders, were so upset about Paul preaching Christ that they were out in the streets screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! defending the temple to Diana that was there. So there were all these various different gods. You could kind of choose your god. And so Paul had to take the time to say there's only one God. And he is the father of everybody. So whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever pantheon of gods your society has, those gods are nothing. We've been talking about that for the last couple of Wednesday nights out of the book of Isaiah. Your gods simply are not proven by the fact that you have to nail them to a piece of wood to make them stand up. So they're not much of a God. And so Paul argues there's only one true, genuine God, and he is the father of everybody, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you believe. He's still the only God. He's still the creator God. You're still here because of him. And he is over all, and he is through all, and he is in all. Paul ran out of pronouns. He's the God that is everywhere and is above everything, and he is in the midst of everything. He's that God. He's the God who created everything, who occupies everything, who is controlling everything. He's the absolute sovereign God, and you cannot escape him. There's one God. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one Holy Spirit. Therefore, there's one body. You get Paul's argument? There's one body, says verse 4, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, 
There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But even though there is one Father, one Son, one Spirit, to each one of us, each of us that's in the church, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul does not elucidate that particular phrase right here, but he does in 1 Corinthians, so that we can get a wider sense of Paul's theology. I think it's worth taking a little turnover into 1 Corinthians 12 and seeing what Paul is talking about here, because in writing to the Corinthians, he explains that there is one God, one Lord Jesus Christ, there is one Spirit, but there's this diversity of charisma. The word translated grace in the New Testament is charis. Charisma is the gifts of grace, and that seems to be what Paul is talking about here in verse 7 when he says, to each of us grace was given. It's obvious that God gave us grace when he saved us, but he also gave us gifts particular to the person for the good of the whole body. So there's one body, even though there is a diversity of gifts within the body. I can't play piano like Luann does. I hack away at it. I treat it like a percussion instrument, but I can't play melodically the way she does. And she reads music. That's a different gift. But she used her gift for the good of the whole body. You see the example? It's a very obvious example that we all got to witness this morning, but that's true of absolutely everybody who is within the body of Christ, that God has given everybody particular giftings and abilities for the good of the whole group. So there is particularity, there's individuality, and there's collective unity within the church. The way that God knits it together like a tapestry so that when you stand back and look at it, it's all one unified piece. But it's a whole lot of different threads and a whole lot of different colors and a whole lot of different techniques in order to make that one unified thing. And that's the way the church is. Are you in 1 Corinthians 12? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are going to start reading, well, let's start reading at verse 1. Here is Paul talking about spiritual gifts. Concerning the spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, unbelievers, you were led astray to dumb idols. Dumb right there doesn't mean stupid. It means can't talk, can't hear, can't think, can't listen, can't do anything can't stand up on their own. You know that you used to be pagans and you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says that Jesus Christ is accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. You see what Paul's getting at? There's a variety of gifts within the body, but that doesn't mean there's a variety of spirits within the body. There is a singular spirit, various gifts. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. In other words, the way that the gifts manifest and who those gifts help is also determined by Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God gives you the gift, and then Jesus himself determines how that gift is best used within the body and how it ministers to other people. And there are varieties of effects. There's a variety of outcomes, but it's the same God who works all things in all persons. So there he did it again. Spirit, Son, Father, they're all included here. And he said there's a variety of gifts, 
there's a variety of effects, and there's a variety of ways that it affects other people. But that's not up to you, that's up to God, because there's only one Spirit, only one Lord, and only one Father. Verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's the unity. Each one is given a particular gift. Remember, he's talking about spiritual gifts here. Each one is gifted for the common good of the whole body. To one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a word of knowledge according to that same Spirit. To another, faith by that same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healings by that one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of those tongues. But it is the one and the same Spirit who works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he, the Spirit, determines. The Spirit of God determines who gets what gifts. And not every individual within the church has the same gifts. But the distribution of those gifts is up to the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 says, But even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members are of the body, though they are many, they are one body. And so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of that one spirit. And then he goes on and talks about how the body is not all just an eye or all just a hand. But I hope that that helped you to understand a little bit more of the theology that Paul has toward the body and toward unity. There is unity in the body because there is one spirit, there is one Lord, there is one God who is father over everyone. So that creates unity within the body, within the church, within those who are the called. Therefore, he can say, and this is my whole point. I hope you've been following along so far. Therefore, he can say, knowing all that, Act like it. Walk like it. Behave like it. Conduct your life like that's true of you. I'm back in Ephesians 4 now. To each one of us, a grace, a gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's the one who gifts every individual within the body with the gifts, with the abilities that we have. And then he's going to wander into sort of a parenthetical thing. He's going to quote from Psalm 68, 18. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So he's using David's writing in the Psalms in order to say, see, David said it too. The gifts that men have, God gave us those gifts and those abilities. But because he quoted the whole verse from David and he quoted, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That was almost like a squirrel running in front of Paul because now it's going to draw his attention away from the gift conversation to the question of Jesus ascending and descending. He has to do it. He has to go chase this little theological point because when you get to verse 11, you'll see, and he gave some, and he starts talking about gifts to the church again. So there's this parenthetical moment where Paul, the eminent theologian, just can't quote from David without commenting on it. He feels compelled to say something about this ascending and descending. But the point, the reason that he quoted Psalm 68, 18, was to just mention that he gave gifts to men. All right, so let's look at the parenthesis, and then we'll call it a morning. Now, this expression that he ascended... 
What does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? That has nothing to do with what Paul's been talking about up until this moment. But once he quoted it from the psalm, he has to explain it theologically. This expression that Paul wrote down that he is ascended, what does that mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He's talking about after Jesus Christ died, for three days, three nights while he was dead, he ascended into the lower parts of the earth. Jesus himself said it. He said the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, three nights, the Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth, belly of the earth, for three days, three nights. And so Paul picks that up and says, notice that even David prophetically said that when the Messiah came, that he was going to ascend on high. But what does that mean except that he first descended into the very belly of the earth? What does that mean except that he had descended into the lowest parts of the earth? And he who descended, Christ himself, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he can fill all things. And then he goes back to talking about gifts. I want to talk about the parenthesis. I have for many, many years argued that Jesus Christ got about as up as up gets. You don't get more up than Jesus got. He was here on planet Earth. He walked on planet Earth. And when he died... He was buried. That puts him in a cave, in a tomb, maybe down a couple feet. But then he went down into the very belly of the earth. Peter says that he went there so that he could preach to the captives. And that when he ascended on high, that he led captivity captive. Mysterious, wonderful language about what Jesus was accomplishing in the spiritual realm that those people who were there in the bosom of Abraham the very Savior went all the way to them and preached to them and brought them out with him astounding but that means that he started his journey to the throne in heaven he started that journey from the belly of the earth lower than you're ever going to go he started in Hades. We call it Hades. He started in the very belly of the earth. And three days, three nights went by, during which he was preaching to the captives. And then he rose. Do you realize what an ascension that is? He came up from the belly of the earth back onto planet earth. That's a huge ascension. But he was just beginning. Because 50 days later, he was talking to his apostles, giving them their last instructions, and then rose up off the planet, was enveloped by clouds, and disappeared into the blue. He ascended again. He just keeps ascending. Paul said he ascended above the highest heavens. In Greek thinking, there are three heavens. There's the heaven that is just above us right now, the oxygen, the, what encompasses the planet so that we can breathe, where the birds fly. The birds fly in the heavens. Okay, so that's one set of heavens. But then there's the heavens of the stars. You look up and you see the stars and the planets and the galaxies, and that's that version of the heavens. And then there's the heaven where God sits, the ultimate highest heaven. So Paul said, not only did Jesus ascend, but he ascended as much as ascending gets. He went as far up as up goes. And he started as far down as down goes. And he traversed from the belly of the earth to the throne room of God where he presently is sitting at the right hand of God, waiting until he makes the his enemies, his footstool. I mean, you don't get more ascended than Jesus Christ is. 
Okay, so now why did I take the time to try to elucidate the upness with which Christ got up? All the way up. Completely up. As ascended, as up gets, he got up. Why would I bring that up? Because you are an ambassador for that one. The one that is sitting at the right hand of God right now, the one who conquered death, hell, and the grave, the one who God was so pleased with that he brought him all the way up to his right hand, that's the one you're supposed to represent. Act like it. That's Paul's message. Knowing who you are, knowing how you were redeemed, knowing the grace of God and knowing the finished work of Jesus Christ, how you're going to be, what you're going to be like. He says, walk according to that calling wherewith you were called. You were called by God, for God, to God's glory. Act like it. Walk like it. Think like it. Behave like it. Treat each other like it. Because Christianity is not just a whole bunch of head knowledge. Christianity is not just a whole bunch of doctrine that you can say, wow, I'm smart, I know a bunch of doctrine now. If all of that doctrine in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians doesn't affect your heart to the point where you're willing to then behave according to the doctrine you have learned, you still don't know Christianity. You got it? And I didn't mean to look at anybody in particular at that moment. And yet I did. Steve, Luann, if you would. We're going to sing, I need you every hour. A great hymn that just fits with what the pastor told us today. How should we live? We need him to do it. Let's sing, I need thee every hour.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.